Hello and welcome. You are listening to episode number 50 of Inglorious Artists, and I am Peter Holland. I probably didn't think we were going to get this far three years ago. And I know 50 episodes isn't that much in the grand scheme of things when it comes to podcasts, but it's a lot for me. And it's a lot for this type of podcast. So we're going to kind of celebrate the big 5-0 by having a guest that is not quite as inglorious, because I'm talking to a two-time Academy Award nominee, a four-time BAFTA Award nominee, a Emmy Award nominee, and a six-time Irish Film Award winner, because today I'm talking to this person. I'm Seamus McGarvey. I'm a cinematographer. It's lovely to be talking to you today. So how are you doing in all this? Uh, I mean, I have to say to all the listeners that we are doing this remotely, even though we're actually not that far away from each other. It's like an hour drive with car, probably. That's right. Yes, I, I live in in Skåne, and um, I, I love it here. Just down the road from you, um, it's beautiful at the minute. Uh, sort of reminds me of home, of Ireland, because uh, it's uh, very okay. cloudy, very rainy, very windy. But that's quite actually a comfort yeah. to me. <laughs> Not really any rolling hills, right? It's quite flat. No, no, it's, v- it's very flat, but it's sort of uh, spectacular for that. We're very close to the sea here. So it's, it's, mm. a really, it's a really beautiful place to be and to, yeah, yeah, to yeah, sort yeah, of knuckle down uh, during this pandemic. I, I've actually been um, in Italy for the last four or five months in Sicily. Uh, All right, shooting something. Yeah, I was working on a film with uh, my old friend Joe Wright, with whom I've done like five or six projects. And um, yeah, we were there for quite a long time in Noto in Sicily, making Cyrano. Oh, wow. Okay. Time for another Cyrano. It is. It's another Cyrano. There's a different take on on it this time, which... uh, I can't actually reveal right now, but no, I, could, I can tell you that it's it's a, a it's a musical. Okay. Uh, with the band The National, that uh, did the soundtrack, yeah, yeah. and it's really wonderful. Uh, it's not a, a it's not a typical Hollywood kind of hooray for Hollywood show tapping type musical. It's it's uh, right. the, the songs really weave in and out of the of the dialogue and the narrative in a in a very interesting mm. way. So that was what I've been up to. But has how has that worked? How has how has the COVID pandemic affected you and your work? Uh, has projects been cancelled and? Yeah, I mean, working trying to shoot a film during COVID is um, mm. is like wading through treacle. It it really is. I mean, we're we're used to. The, the normal rhythm of a film set and and how we work on a film set mm-hmm. that's all out the window uh at this time because yeah. obviously for everyone's safety we had to follow all the protocols and the social mm-hmm. distancing and and with that and t- also testing every day well every two days initially but when we had uh act- actors or or other uh extras in for for background people 
uh, we had to do it every single day, and that was wow. for a large part of the film, actually. So yeah, yeah, yeah. my my nasal passages are are well cleansed. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So you have to do that swab way down into the. Yeah, oh. it is like the nasal kebab. I used to call it. Where it just goes right in there. <laughs> <laughs> mm, yeah, it doesn't sound pleasant. Yeah. We all kept safe and healthy, and the film miraculously um, continued despite, you know, repeated like a, a more extreme lockdowns in Italy, in Sicily, the curfews and everything, and all the shops, mm-hmm. restaurants closed, and you know, for the end of the film, we were really kind of. It was a bit of a struggle, I've got to say, but I think that the film should be should be quite good because, in a weird way, that that the kind of frame of nothingness in a in a beautiful place like Notto in Sicily really focused mm. us in on on the the movie at hand, and we all wanted to get it made and, and, sure. and get out before uh, before the holidays. Yeah. Well, I guess you saw or heard that uh, thing that Tom Cruise did when he kind of lost it on a Mission Impossible set and scolded some uh, crew members yeah. for not following the protocols, really. <laughs> and uh, he had he has a point, so I, I get why he was mad. Was- I and I totally agree with him. You know, he, he is prone to his uh, kind of outbursts. But actually, um, I, I absolutely agree with with him in, in that instance. When the protocols are there to be followed and to keep everyone safe and to keep everyone working, then they mm. ought to be followed. And, and it, it means that if a movie of the scale of Mission Impossible achieves it successfully, then... You know, other movies will follow suit, and and hopefully, as yeah, the yeah, vaccine yeah. becomes uh, comes back in again, or comes in, mm. we can all mm. get back to work and 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 make a living again. So that's that's really yeah, hopefully, exciting. Yeah. That uh, mm. th- there there is light at the, at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, but no, nothing you've been uh, doing or scheduled to do has been cancelled or moved or anything like that. You haven't been that affected. Yes, I, you know, I, I was actually in Los Angeles. I was uh, involved in in Spider Man. Oh yeah, uh, starting that. In fact, I was prepping that in Los Angeles at the time mm-hmm. uh, of the pandemic, and it was like March of last year. And eventually they just kept pushing it back and back and back. They are actually mm-hmm. shooting it again now, but I wasn't involved in the end because I was sort of in lockdown, oh. unable to get out right. of Los Angeles. And uh, I yeah, managed yeah, yeah. to okay. to uh, finally get out. And, and luckily Joe's film came came in. But uh, mm-hmm. it was that was that was a, a, a tricky one trying to prep that remotely. Yeah, of course. Yeah, uh, somebody needs to tell uh, IMDb, I guess, because you're still. I know, I know. <laughs> on Spider Man now. Yeah. So you're doing a lot of these Zoom things uh, with crew and uh, directors and so on, like that. You're prepping like that. Yeah, I mean, the good thing about about it was that during that time that I was in LA, um, I was able to prep. Spider-Man up to a point, but I was also able to, I had the time to, to be able to do these uh, Zoom talks with film schools and film students, like all over the world, really. And it was, it was actually kept me sane because mm-hmm. I was able to, uh, you know, keep my interest in cinema alive. Right. But yeah, also yeah. it was, it was lovely feeling that uh, sort of, the communion of of 
people all, you know, in the same situation. There was something very mm. comforting about that. That's true. Yeah, I agree with that. You feel like everybody's had a shitty year. Yeah. <laughs> it's not just you, you know, in different ways. So that, that really uh, put me in, in good form. And it, it also, you know, hopefully we, we had some really interesting conversations with these students and hear about their projects. And I was helping maybe mm. advising on certain things with them. And it was just really mm. invigorating time and knowing that people were sort of like greyhounds ready to get out of the trap. And I, I think that <laughs> yeah. it, we, we're probably going to have a, a torrent of really interesting projects as soon as uh, we get out the other side of this. Probably. Yeah, it feels like a lot of people I know has had their COVID project, kind of, that they tried to do a feature or a, like in my case, I'm doing a, I'm doing a short right now. Oh, and, great. Uh, just to uh, have something to do. But that also means that when projects need to be getting out there, we have something, you know. Yeah. And uh, it might even be, a, you know, an upside to that. Like maybe there's not that many so the little indie project might actually break through a little bit easier through the static maybe or you know i really think so i, I think it's it's definitely going to go that way i think people mm. in the rush push and shove of it all won't have to you know they've got time to think about things i think that it, it might lead to a more poetic cinema and uh, sort of a ah. reflective cinema interesting thought well, I, I hope it will anyway. I think if people have got time on their hands, their imaginations uh, drift into the clouds and, and you think differently when there isn't the imperative of, of the, 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 the mouse wheel and uh, yeah. making money or More getting introspective, project to the next maybe. one. Exactly, introspective. Let's do a basic question, but also a very big one, I suppose. So how do you go from being a kid in Ireland to being one of the world's leading cinematographers. <laughs> well, maybe that's history we're talking about. It was just like I got a couple of lucky breaks, as anybody does yeah. who manages to, to uh, do stuff. Because it is obviously, as we know, a very competitive industry and very competitive art form. But I was just lucky that I sort of followed my nose and followed my passions wherever they led me, you know, I didn't have a grand plan of, uh, mm. you know, an ambitious, I did have ambitions to, to make films and to, you know, hopefully tell stories, but I didn't have a roadmap for it. And I was just very lucky mm. that, that, well, th through college, great tutors, great friends there, and then just always doing stuff that excited me visually mm. and that mm. kind of stimulated the passion in me and you know i've been lucky that 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 has continued um actually never left me i i really love what i do and if maybe if, if that ever departed then i i would stop um mm. because yeah. it's really the passion that that drives you really nothing mm. exactly what you're doing and then just lucky to learn from like great great cinematographers firstly cinematographers i assisted and, oh, yeah, yeah, and then directors that i i worked with i've learned so much from them i mean this weekend i'm i'm sort of grieving really I, there's no other way to describe it for one of my favorite directors I ever worked with was michael apted and we, we mm. worked together on enigma and then a couple of documentaries 
And he was just such an inspiring man, really mm, incredible mm, person to, yeah. to be with and to and a gentleman as well as a, a genius. So I right. really uh, loved working with him. Mm, yeah, yeah. But you mentioned college there. What college was that? Well, I, I went to the Polytechnic of Central London uh, when I was 17. Okay. I was quite early to go mm, there. Mm. But oh, yeah. it wasn't one of the fancy film schools that, that are in London. It was, it was uh, Polytechnic, but it, it had great studio. It was right in the centre of London. It was somewhere where I really, um, you know, got a lot of inspiration from the place because I was coming from Armagh, which is a relatively small city uh, mm -hmm. in Northern Ireland. And suddenly I was in the thick of... Uh, of this great metropolis yeah, and yeah. Uh, it it was just a beautiful place to 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 see uh, cinema and the history of cinema mm -hmm. that i hadn't encountered before i mean i was not a cineast i was basically a photographer who had an interest in making films oh, and okay. uh, this this was just suddenly i was working as a projectionist at the ica and i was able to uh, see all these foreign movies and asian films and iranian work in Indian films and just the the panoply of world cinema was just suddenly mm. available to me and I just started learning about about the history of cinema and and about the not so much the technique actually because I was learning some of that at college but the college wasn't a very very technical college it, it was although we did practical work there it was it was just really uh an inspiring place to be and visiting lectures and all these people coming in on a regular basis to impart their enthusiasms and, and, and talk about their own movies. So that's something that I've never really left behind. You know, I've, I've always been very keen on education and, and passing down onto the new generations coming up who are seeing it because I remember the mm. enthusiasm with which uh, visiting lectures would talk to us uh, as as young students and uh, that was really the slingshot towards uh you know a, a career was was hearing those people and going well god maybe i could do that too so that that was that was the start of it really in london and i stayed in london after that for a few years and then i moved up to scotland uh, to do a movie and, mm -hmm. and and stayed there for about 10 years more than 10 years Mm. What was that movie? Uh, that was actually, it was a movie called The Slab Boys. Uh, John Byrne uh, was the director of it, an artist. And uh, with his uh, partner at the time, uh, Tilda Swinton, in oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, John Byrne. Um, lots of other actors. It was, it was really uh, a great project to, to do, and I love Scotland so much. And Tilda's still there, <laughs> so she must love it as well. Yeah, she's, she's there. Have you worked with, with Tilda? Yeah, yeah, briefly on Snowpiercer. Oh, yeah. Oh, great. Great, mm -hmm. yeah. I'll, I'll, uh, I haven't seen it yet, uh, but it was... Uh, what a great director he is. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was very nice to see him collect four statues in one night last year. <laughs> that was, was incredible, incredible. Quite bananas, yeah. Have you seen Parasite? Yeah, I, I mean, it's the best film I've seen in the last 10 years. I, I absolutely mm. loved it, loved it. Oh, I can't yeah, wait to nice. see what he comes up with next. Mm. 
So from Scotland, where you were and did that film, um, did you uh, did you feel like every project you did just led to another and it just got bigger and bigger and all of a sudden exploded? <laughs> kind of. I mean, I was just, I got a couple of lucky breaks, to be honest, Peter. I mean, I, I'd done a, f- a feature, I'd done um, that one and another one in London. Then I did a film with Michael Winterbottom. It was his first feature. Uh, called Butterfly yeah. Kiss, and it was mm. showing at the Edinburgh Film Festival, and I was there. Although I lived in Glasgow, I was I was over in Edinburgh for the screening, and in the bar, I uh, I it was a packed, fairly packed bar, and I asked if I could sit down at a table where this man was was had a few spare seats beside him, and that man turned out to mm. be Stephen Frears, uh, <laughs> and so I sat down and and. Uh, we we both had a beer together and and um he didn't know that I was a cinematographer and I didn't know he was Stephen Frears but I, I eventually <laughs> deduced exactly who he was and when I said I was a cinematographer and I was here for my film he said well that's the film I'm going to see and I I'm actually coming to see it because I want to see your work because oh, my cameraman wow. has left me you know he had a, a DP uh, who was going to do High Fidelity. And yeah, yeah, yeah. for some reason, they had a falling out. And uh, mm. and so he came, we watched the film, and he said afterwards, well, do you want to come and, and, and shoot a movie with me in, in Chicago? And uh, mm. I'm going to be scouting their locations in three weeks' time. And sure enough, three weeks later, I was in Chicago scouting a movie for Disney, you know, a, a big-budget movie, big-budget for me, like $30 million. Yeah. And uh, it was, I sort of never looked back after that, really, in terms, that sort of opened the door to American projects. And yes, and after that, course. once I'd shot a studio film and hadn't been fired, mm. uh, it, it sort of opened up many doors for me in terms of, firstly, well, getting an agent in America and, and mm. being on a studio list that they say, okay, well, that person's okay is 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 mm-hmm. to shoot this film. So I think after that it became a lot easier to well get visas for America. All those oh, things yeah. mm-hmm. uh, opened mm-hmm. up doors for me, and it was also just working at scale. I mean, I've always loved to do bigger budget films and and smaller, more independent work that that sort of keeps a, a creative equilibrium. Of course, yeah. I think uh, High Fidelity is probably uh, the the movie of your your work that I've actually seen the most times. I might I must have seen High Fidelity at, le- at least a dozen times or something. Oh God! I wish I really wish I could shoot it again. Okay, because I mean I look at it and I mean if I can talk candidly, it was it was an education for me just in terms of. Mm. You know, I thought that working with a director was just about, you know, you come out, you discuss stuff, you you make the greatest film you can do. And and yeah. uh, with with Frears, the, there was a there was a sort of a triumvirate of, of the writers, John Cusack and Steve Pink, D.B. DeVincentis and Stephen. Mm. Mm. Uh, and they were they had a, a notion of the film that was very, very based in in script and that's Stephen's style anyway it's like script is God and Mm. but at the same time I know that Cusack and I really wanted to do something that was a little bit more vivid uh, Mm. in terms of the visuals 
And uh, so we started the film, embarked on this look that was very, a little bit strident, shall I say. You know, I had like all the the kind of uh, first person uh, talks to camera. Mm, I love those. But they were all they were all shot like sort of with initially with sort of wide lenses pushing in, and they were mm. they were kind of they were quite stylized. And Freer's after the first rushes came back went nuts. He hated the look of that and the feel of it. Oh. And I was going okay. for a very vivid, saturated look, both with the design designer uh, and and the photography, and uh. it was just didn't sit correctly in a british realist's uh head Uh, eyes yeah yeah so did he want it to be a little bit more documentary style yeah uh, a little bit more i suppose honest you know obviously Ah, ultimately the 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 film uh, is what it is and and people seem to love it Uh, you know but i do i i (laughs) wanted to to uh to go for something a bit bolder but uh, mm. yeah, it, it, the film is what it is. But I would, if if I was doing it again, I'd I'd probably have the authority and the the, the kind of confidence to argue for like a, a different uh, style of approach, but that that might have been more elusive, alluring to an audience. All right. Do you find that you do that sometimes? That you feel like you have a discussion with the director that leads to maybe a different uh, approach or something like that. Yeah. That you I mean, might prefer. It's always an exchange. It's always like an exchange between you and the director. And, and, but it's, it's very different with each director. Some mm-hmm. are, are, are very open to those contributions, those ideas, and others are, are more reticent um, like mm. Oliver Stone on on World Trade Center, for instance, really wanted uh, yes. a, a paired back look, which we ended up sort of doing. But it was actually an example that I could bring that I think is it was actually my favorite way of, of working. Uh, it was with Tom Ford on Nocturnal Animals, yeah. and Tom was was really interesting because when I went in for the interview, I hadn't met him before. But I walked into the room and 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 after about ten minutes of of just ch- chatting with him, he said, "You know, you're the first. I've interviewed some cinematographers for this job, and and you're the first one who's come in who hasn't come in with a bag of books or has just sort of told me how the film should look, and, okay. and that's really interesting. We we just talked about literature. We talked about you know mutual friends, the weather." And he, uh, he yeah, said, look, yeah. I know we can get on. Uh, you've got the job. So it was the quickest mm-hmm. interview interview I've ever done. And it actually ended up being one of the most satisfying visually because Tom mm. continued that verbal sort of pathology of the of the, the prospective film right up until we were about to shoot. And he said, look, images are so totemic and big and overwhelming that I don't want to bring them in to our discussion for the first two weeks of our of our preparations for this film. Oh, okay. So it was a really interesting and valuable lesson in in thinking into a film, thinking about the thematics, thinking about what the script means, certainly talking about where locations might be or what the sort mm. of general ambiance is, but 
sharing that purely verbally, linguistically, was something that allowed me, certainly as a cinematographer, to distill the visuals and mm. not to have this mm. kind of like scattergun approach that sometimes can happen when you come in uh, all guns blazing with a look. Uh, and certainly that really served the location finders, the production designer when they came in and they were able mm. to say we could be very specific about what we were aiming for. And then mm. we started bringing in not references, but actually color that was just even chopped out of a magazine. It could have been a like a, a, uh, a fabric or a, a curtain or a a part, a detail of an image, and mm. and gradually you build up a color kind of color codes to the trajectory of the film, and then yeah. you find the locations, and then when a set is required, it can be designed with specificity. Mm. And uh, it was yeah. just a really lovely way of working. Yeah, I mean, that film really, uh, you're talking about colors. I mean, that's what you think about when you think about Nocturnal Animals, that it's so vivid when it comes to colors. And uh, the different scenes have a very different uh, own kind of identities when it comes to color and so on. And it also strikes me like, I really thought that you did have a look in mind when you went into it because it's so designed in a way um, and it's so beautiful. I mean, if you look at that movie script, uh, I'm guessing you wouldn't really immediately see a lot of images because it's people talking to each other and maybe a party scene. And, yeah. You know, but, but still, every shot is so gorgeous. <laughs> Even if it's just that a couple of definitely people talking, you know. Tom's influence and and you know he is a, a visual genius, obviously. And uh, but we we did have he was very very collaborative because I was kind of expecting him to to be exactly the, the the great designer in his atelier, you know, being specific oh, about yeah, yeah. every last detail. But actually, obviously, he uh, strained. Uh, you know, every image to the nth degree, ultimately, especially in the grading. Mm -hmm. But he really allowed input and collaboration and dialogue. There was a real democracy of visualization that happened between production design, costume, makeup, and myself in, in photography. Uh, and that mm -hmm. was why it became, you really felt that you were part of it and that it was just... Uh, sort of exploding in front of you it was really um crystallizing as as we yeah, yeah. as we made those discussions had those discussions mm. you mentioned grading there i mean how much these days do you have uh, say over how the grading will be and uh, how involved are you in the you know the look because it must feel like it's your baby from beginning to end when it comes to the image but it's not really because it's going to be somebody else taking over yeah, finalizing it. I mean, in in my contract, I have always uh, grading is is kind of agreed upon, uh, like mm -hmm. a, a usually a two week pay or half paid uh, time in the grade, but it usually takes about three weeks or sometimes more. But mm -hmm. I love to be involved in that, and whether it's if I'm in another job, for instance, I've done it on on the Avengers and on Godzilla, I was remotely grading 
which which is quite difficult, but it does work because mm. you, you, you finish a day's work and then you grade somebody in another country. But um, it, it's wow. it's absolutely essential. Uh, and when I haven't been able to be there personally, I can do it that way. Technology exists now that that I can set up a, a graded monitor and have it mm. FedEx to me and, and actually do a live grade with a properly calibrated monitor and do it in real time like this. It's not over mm. Zoom, but it's mm. an o- over another platform that, yeah, that yeah. is similar. Um, and it, it really works so well. Um, and then the greater, if you're in different time zones, the, t- the color colors can be, you know, prepping ahead of time and, and making that, you know, then sending you examples that you can then comment upon. So the thing works very mm. clearly like that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I love it. But having said that, nocturnal animals, uh, Tom called me up and he said, look, I know we've agreed that you can be part of the grading, but mm. I really want to spend some time on this by myself. And it was a self-funded film. And he said, look, I'm probably mm. going to spend about three weeks just tinkering with all this. And then you can come in at the end. It's just, I, it'll be a distraction for me uh, if, if, okay. we're, if we're in there together and it'll take much longer. So he said, mm. but I promise you, uh, if there's anything you want to change or do to it, it you have carte blanche. So okay. mm. I watched the film at, at the end of his period of tinkering and I didn't change a frame. But there was maybe one uh, little thing that, like a graduation filter on on a couple of shots. That was okay. the, that was all I had to do. It was so fine tuned and honed and perfectly rendered mm. that mm. Uh, that I I I uh, could have to do it. Hmm. But, um, but then you also now mentioned uh, Avengers and Godzilla. I mean, those are films with a lot of CGI. Of course. So that's another uh, aspect, I guess. How yeah. Do you, how do you shoot scenes where, where, like, the object of the scene is not in the scene? <laughs> that's other people are going to be working on the, that visual aspect of it. So, yeah, it takes a lot of imagination to do that. And we had some help right. with the device on on Godzilla because obviously you're you're. Um, pre-visualizing a lot of the scenes, you know, and, mm. and making yeah. that stuff in advance with it, with a, a whole other team. And that material can be provided the right lenses are used. You know what your lens systems are, your aspect ratio. You can actually feed that pre-visualization into your shots that you're doing. So uh, we know what Godzilla, what height he is, and we know what where the Hulk is or what, um, those those are tools that I, I find you know very useful. Um, mm. In a weird way, I know you probably won't believe this, but both those films had minimal minimal CGI. There were CGI characters, obviously for Godzilla, mm, yeah, yeah. but the, mm. a lot of it was in camera. Obviously, we did have green screen elements in 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 both films for like mm. the bridge sequence in Godzilla or or for uh, some of the New York sections in, in the Avengers. No, but they were largely, for, for those type of films, they were probably the least CG uh, or gr- certainly green screen shot uh, mm. films. And that was just a decision from the directors, who's, both of whose instincts, Joss Whedon and Gareth Edwards, 
is towards naturalism and uh, yeah. and that's yeah, yeah. in performance in cinematography and just in the in the style of the film uh, oh yeah it really affects performance to not be you know be having to stare at a green screen or something like that just, uh, <laughs> no. and it does I, weird uh, things to my eyes you know when you're in a green screen environment for for days it just mm. your brain corrects it i mean that's the weird phenomenon it, it corrects yeah. the green to gray by the end of the day you don't even see the green and you go out and the whole world is sort of magenta tinged like rose tinted wow. it's, it's uh it's actually something i love is walking out of a green screen at the end of a day's work and seeing everything yeah. tinted pink <laughs> seeing the real world within quotes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right i haven't done it that much so i've been lucky in that sense i guess um but it, you never worked with that, that kind of thing that they have now on the mandalorian you know the the, the lcd screens that surround people not yet no i haven't i mean i've done lots of live projection uh, and in fact, we did some the, all the driving stuff on uh, on nocturnal animals was done with, oh, with yeah. projection. We mm. we did it very crudely. We just went out on a on an array of vehicle with video cameras. Although we shot on film, we shot mm. with video cameras. Got the plates of the nighttime uh, driving, and then shot it, knowing that performance was so vital and uh, and lighting a. A, a, a desert road for for interior car work would have just taken days and days and days and days. Yeah. So mm. we 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 did some projection for that, but it's it's very interesting what's happening because I love the fact that that a series like Mandalorian can use that technology as a, mm. as a DP, knowing that all your reflections are integral, knowing that you can actually use yeah. the sky as a light source as it yeah. would be yeah. is is wonderful mm. yeah and to us as actors we have something to look at so that's yeah, kind of actually exactly. there in, in a way we, we we can look towards the horizon and yeah actually see it it's fantastic what's happening in technology it's stealthily changing um even though we've all been sort of largely idle in the past year but um the there's great leaps forward in technology for lighting and, and cinematography, the digital yes. realm and the LEDs and all these things that are that are happening are just making um, our our lives a, a little bit easier, I suppose. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, you know they're they're expensive at the moment, but gradually they're, the, sure. the prices are dropping. Yeah, they must be. Uh, so Nocturnal Animals were, uh, was shot on film. It was, yes. Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah we shot, that was a decision from the very outset. Uh, just as a way, we wanted to, in the flashbacks, to have a sense that we could see the film grain, the granularity. That that mm. was something that, that we wanted. I think that as soon as we started discussing about color and red being a, a significant kind of psychic constituent in color terms of the film, yeah. um, we wanted to uh, really make that register clearly. And, and digital at that point, it's getting a little better now, but red was one of the sort of forbidden colors that would just become so electric and uh, oh, yeah. buzzy. That uh, I, I definitely wanted to, to to shoot on film for that reason, almost alone. 
Um, and, you know, it, it was great as well just to have the discipline, I think, something that I've noticed on some digital sets, which is great for actors if you want to just keep run a take again and again and again. But it, it can lead to kind of a, a flaccid approach to camera and set discipline. And uh-huh. when people mm. know that they're in for a sort of a 10 or 12 minute or 15 minute run for, on, a, on a particular take, mm. you find that people sort of you end up like like little fireflies of blue light around the darkness and on the edge of set. So suddenly start yeah. peeking up and people are on their phones and it, it just people get very tired and languid, whereas the, the uh-huh. clapperboard and the, the, the length of a take really, really helps the the uh, rhythm of, of a set. And even the changing a mag for film, there's a certain ritual in that. It, there is, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like a, a ceremony where, yeah. when that's happening. The guy comes in and picks it up and walks away, and you look at him like, there it is. <laughs> yes, exactly. The magic <laughs> of that's fantastic. Yeah. Oh, let's all honor the film. and yeah, but I remember actually talking about that that magic and the sort of intangibility of film, which, you know, on digital, obviously, you know mm. you've got it and the, the, the DIT checks it and you know that everything's going to be there and hunky-dory. But mm. with film, mm. I remember on, on Atonement, uh, we did that big long take, the five-minute take, and uh, at, the, at the end of it, I just I remember handing the magazine to the to the loader and saying like this is the most important role you'll ever download like please don't <laughs> fog it because uh, right. it, it, it really it really was an important film and, and we didn't know we had it I remember it was on a weekend the lab was closed that weekend and uh, we we didn't know it was in the can and Joe the mm. we'd lost video assist during the take and uh Nobody knew that we we had it, and so on, on the Monday when the film came back, suddenly, after two days or three days, we were able to finally breathe again, knowing that his, right, yeah, his yeah. Take is was it in okay? The can, literally, yeah. I've only worked on one project on film, and uh, one time when they checked the gate, there was a hair. You know, oh yeah, so we had to do it do it again, and I was like, oh, it actually happens. <laughs> how, how, how often does that happen that you have to check the gate and, and it's like, oh no, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost nostalgic for hairs in the gate these days uh, <laughs> okay. because it used to be a pain when you found one, but it often was the holy grail of when it, when an actor wanted another take the director wanted to move on and you can almost if the actor give you that look uh, or a little mm. nod and a wink you would you would find a hair like a, a, oh. a, kind of a ghostly mm. hair as a way of saying look sorry we will have to and nobody could contradict it a, a, a director couldn't contradict it but the, the actor would be very glad of of having another mm. go that's almost like a coup <laughs> <laughs> You're directing the director. <laughs> so, uh, okay, so how much do you do on film these days? Is it like it's not 50-50, I guess. It isn't 50-50. The last one I did was Bad Times at the El Royale. Is that on film? Okay. Well. Yeah, that was on anamor- film and we shot with anamorphic lenses. Uh, yeah. um, and But that was like two and a half years ago now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, oh, it is, right. It felt like very recently. I saw yeah, that I think it, yeah. it just came out. I mean, if you've seen it, it, you're one of the rare birds who has seen it because uh, it, have, it yeah. came out like and it. 
Yeah, I mean, I really like that film too, but it was one of those ones that just got buried and there was like Fox mm. and Disney and there was all that takeover and it was just new people taking over in executive roles and it was just like, it was shunted to the to the vaults. It might be, it, could it be that it's a film that really was a bit out of its time? Mm. That it wasn't really, I mean, had it come in the 90s when uh, when Tarantino was coming up and something like that, that would, would per, be perfect, you know, for yeah. that kind of... I think so. I think there there is an aspect of that. Uh, it, it is a little bit out of time. It was maybe tonally a little bit uh, wavering. Uh, sure. Yeah. How dark is it? We yeah. Can't really exactly. tell. <laughs> well, these grey hairs that I sport uh, attest to to how dark uh, you dare to take things on film, because again, you don't know if you've just tipped the uh, too far over the edge into the obscurity and you might be fired in the morning when they realize that th- th- things are too dark we had a number of of quite uh dark scenes in, in that that the director was urging me to go darker and darker and darker and i was like um. you know what we can we can definitely pull it back a little bit in the final grade and and, and darken it further i'd rather actually get the image done at a certainly a, as a low key scene, but certainly not yeah. not lithographic black, which uh, some directors mm. want. That sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that was nothing I thought about with that film. I thought it was quite vibrant, also a very colorful film. Yeah, there was yeah, the design was amazing, and uh, yeah. Drew Goddard, the the writer, is, has got a, a great visual sensibility. He mm, writer yeah. director, yeah. So, mm. so uh, well, it was it was fun, and we shot it all. I mean, mostly in the studio. That was the other thing. Even the day, some of the day exteriors were done in Vancouver in this massive studio, and even the rain was was all built into it. So it was technically a bit of a challenge in it, and doing it in such an old school way, like lighting a, a, an area like that of that size for day and for night. But having the 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 rhythm of of being able to move from indoors to outdoors when actually there was like five foot of snow outside the studio doors in in the okay. Vancouver winter, so yeah, that that meant it was it was actually a really lovely shoot to work on um, mm-hmm. because it was we were all sort of cozy indoors for most of the time. And that, when you were talking about dark scenes, uh, I got to think of a story, and it's a bit of a gossipy story because some of the crew on Snowpiercer was actually telling me that they had worked on Alien versus Predator that was shot uh, there as well, and apparently they had to start over because they realized it was too dark. Oh my god! <laughs> that must have been mortifying to for everybody to do it again. Oh <laughs> no! Oh no! Yeah, it's it's it. As the pretenders sang, it's a thin line between. I, I, I adjust the lyrics to, to between dark and fired. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But it's good. I mean, certainly with digital now, you're seeing how technology is steering uh, cinematographers towards a more uh, low key look uh, because yes. they can dare further. To, to take it right to the edge of exposure and know that they're not going to lose their jobs when the dailies come back in the morning. Yeah, because you can save it in grade, you mean? Yeah, absolutely. You can see exactly what you're you're looking at. And people are taking... That's why you've got all these velvety 
uh, low-key, kind of underexposed. I mean, I joke about it. I'm like, when I look at some of these uh, TV and series and films now, I'm like, I'm mm. so hungry for a highlight, you know. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. There's no, everything's so obscure and flat and velvet black and there's no there's not a point of light in that entire frame i agree i agree i can actually appreciate when you see a more old-fashioned let's say contrasty image yeah (laughs) yeah i love it i love it but there you go i mean it's all part of phases cinematography goes through phases and one that we've just been through is when people suddenly discovered they can change the colors on LED lights. So we've had the Mm. last five years have been this rash of like pink, uh, cobalt blue and yellow films that people have gone, Mm. oh, color. But they've only gone two colors. And working with flat sources like that, you don't get spots of color, you get color washes. Sure, yes. Like Dick Tracy and and Vittorio Storaro, master <laughs> of color, had put gels on big lamps, so they have a different feel. Whereas mm. th- this current swathe of of uh, blanket, I call it color blankets, is just. I think it'll be a, a period of cinematography that'll be very reviled in a few years. Oh right, okay. The dark years and the noughties. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But uh, when you're working with digital, do you have favorite uh, equipment? Are you an uh, Ari Alexa fan like everybody else? Or Yeah, I, I am actually, yes, because I, I've experimented with other uh, cameras as they came out, you know, the, the Genesis initially with Panavision's camera. Um, oh, the know. red, the red, in fact, I started shooting uh the Avengers using the, the first red camera, and we, we were shooting it initially uh-huh. in real 3D with 3D rigs. So the the Alexa just was far too bulky to, yes. to put in a 3D yeah. rig, Element Technica mm. rig. So we ended up shooting with red for the first week, and it was it was such a nightmare shooting on 3D, and and the, mm. the director was losing his mind about how long it was taking to to get the IA right and, and calibrate yeah. everything that he just mm. said, look, I couldn't give a damn. I know it's going to be in 3D. And Marvel at that point were already investigating the, the idea of post-dimensionality. Mm. And they'd set up their own kind of company to do so. And, yeah. you know, I, I argued, I said, look, let's shoot it spherically, normally, as you would mm. any other film. And the idea of post-dimensionalization was an exciting thing and we used it quite a lot during the the film uh to which you can't do if if it's baked in is to to just to shift the the dimensionality in the middle of a shot Mm. you know Mm. and we used that quite a lot on the avengers and they really got it right on that one yeah 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 but I, I like I like Alexa. I like the Sony uh, Venice is a beautiful camera. I've I've tested okay. it. I haven't shot a feature on it, but I've done some commercials with it. Mm-hmm. And I tend to use whatever lens it, it suggests itself to the, the project. You know, I love the the new Leica lights lenses in mm. large format because I've been shooting Cyrano on the large format uh, Alexa LF, and they are. 
they're the best lenses uh-huh. I've ever used in my life. Actually, the Leicas, mm. they're they're just so. You know, you think when you think of Leica, you think of ultra sharp, ultra contrasty, you know, beautiful, mm, mm, precise, mm. Uh, correct imagery. But it's not the case with these lenses have a, a real warmth and a personality and a lot of flaring okay. attributes that, that give it, uh, you know, accident a lot is allowed to happen. And I, that was a real surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that 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 is that happens quite a lot actually. When being open to accidents is something that that when people are always worried about how expensive it is to make a film and and what a fuck up is, uh, mm-hmm. but, but actually some of those mess ups uh, can be very very poetic and and, and can, mm-hmm. you know you wouldn't have done it, you wouldn't have attempted to do it. But when it happens, whether it's, I remember on Atonement, we had this big shot that, that, that had a, I thought it was a, a flare throughout the thing, but it was actually when we were, when we'd released the film, uh, a meteorologist got in touch and said, do you realize that that day in the Northeast had a very rare meteorological phenomenon called sun dog? And it's like a, uh, it's like a, a, a rain, tiny rainbow, but in the sky, it's so vivid. And I was like, how the hell did we get that thing? And it was only on one take. Yeah. And where did the flare come from? There was no sun in the sky, but it's a, it's a sun dog. And it was spotted by some weatherman nice. <laughs> who yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. called or wrote, wrote about it eventually. Okay. And then some cynical people might think you actually put it in later. In I know. Action. How did you actually approach that massive uh, Dunkirk scene in Atonement? Well, it was really, it was a lot of planning. And, well, initially, I I always know when Joe Wright, who's I've just done another film with, but we're, we're old friends and we've worked together quite a few times. But he came in and I knew he, he, had, he had a mischievous glint in his eye. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, what's he going to tell us? And he said, well... Mm. I've looked at the script, which was made up of little scenelets, maybe like seven little scenelets that we had to shoot mm. in a day, or maybe it was a day and a half or two days, maybe. And he said, there's no way we can do this on the Dunkirk Beach, which was actually shot in the northeast of England in, um, yeah. in Redcar. He said, we, we mm. have to do it in one take. And I was just like, oh, you know, that's, I always go, when somebody says you have to do it in one take, I go, oh, fuck. No, it's, it's on my shoulders and it's like sure. directors yeah, love yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. And you've done quite a bit of that, actually. So. I have, and people <laughs> think it's my idea and it, it never is. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's always the director wants to do a one take. Right. But I have done quite a few of those. And yeah, look, I'm joking, of course, but I do, I do love to, to you know, push the boat out and and to, to have a challenge like that, but this one was a very very particular challenge because we had literally two and a half hours of uh, where the tide was out long enough to get the shot, uh, and we uh-huh. we looked at at the tides to the day and we realised that there was this one day was the only time we could shoot it so. Only day mm. we could shoot it. So then you're thinking, well, we've no weather cover. We just have to shoot it that day. Yeah. So we initially recorded, we, we looked at um, 
believe it or not, it was the days before cell phones, <laughs> before like iPhones. Mm. So we, we used a little mm. lipstick camera uh, down low uh, on a maquette that the art department had made us that was probably like nine foot by five of of the mm. beach that showed the various positions the the wheel the you know the bandstand and the yeah. bandstand all those things and and we were able to actually say right he, these are the points of view with this little lipstick camera this is where mm. we need that this is where the 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 Ferris wheel should go because we'll be able to get that lovely perspective uh, yeah. with the bandstand and you know all those things were worked out in advance that way then mm. when it came to uh, the shoot we argued for uh, while the tide was in we would shoot little smaller scenes like for instance the scene of Robbie dying where he lights a match and the thing extinguishes which was literally lit with a mm. match a real match mm. nothing mm. else Um and we'd do that while the tide was in. And then when the tide was out, we would all dash outside. And we did like a, with a, a, a very crude, uh, now we've, with Artemis and all those lovely uh, iPhone things, you can pre-visualize a scene with the lens. But we didn't have that. Yeah. So we built a, a lens onto like a video camera and carried it. It, it was going to be eventually a steady cam shot. Yeah. So that way we were able to, with the actual taking lens, be specific as to where everything went. And we had a number of assistant directors on the film who were also dressed in, in you know, soldiers' costumes. Oh. And one of those guys was like pre-retirement was the, he had been the first AD on Gandhi. And I think this was oh, his last okay. film. They got him out of retirement mm. to, because they knew he was brilliant with, uh, with large crowd scenes. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a fun day and a nerve-wracking day. I mean... Were you actually the camera operator? No, no. Uh, oh, okay. I wasn't. I had... My regular operator is a wonderful genius called Peter Robertson. And we've done maybe 10 films together. We've just mm -hmm. done Cyrano together. Apart from being an expert with Steadicam, I mean, he is actually... Oh developed Steadicam enhancements with Garrett Brown, the inventor. Oh, yeah. oh. Um, and he is he is the sort of genius of that shot, really. Once mm. it was conceived by Joe and me and Joe worked out what the camera was going to do, Pete was the guy who actually did it. And uh, all credit to him and the grips and the focus pullers. And actually, most importantly, all the extras were from the town of Redcar in northeast of England, who, uh, okay. none of whom had been on a film set. They'd all been lost their jobs in the local steelworks mm. like a few months before. And here they were just given their all. And there's not a single person looking in the camera or they're all performing. They're the guys singing in the choir and the bandstand. Mm -hmm. They're the guys mm -hmm. rolling down the, the hill covered in oil. They're the people mm -hmm. who made that shot work. You know, they had a sort of a camera awareness. There was a sense of community pride towards mm -hmm. making it work. In fact, I was there a, a year or so ago, and there's a huge statue on the promenade dedicated to mm -hmm. the shot. Even it says, <laughs> okay. this is where the shot went. 
my my uh, wow. teeth nearly fell out of my my head when I saw it. <laughs> of course, wow! But it, it meant it meant a lot to the people of that area who were sort of in the doldrums of economic doldrums after the big steelworks closed. So um, it, it's it's well uh, regarded and and cherished in that area. Mm. So in that way, you got more than one statue out of that film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it was lovely. Actually, the lovely thing about working with Joe is that his films tend to get noticed by like awards people. Not that that yeah. really means a lot, although it's lovely to to be able to go to the Oscars and stuff, which mm. I've done twice on his films. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know... It, yeah, a few of his his works have won Oscars, music, and but Joe is is kind of pissed off. He would he would hate me to tell you this in a podcast, but he's really pissed off that he's never been nominated himself. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he's good at surrounding himself with good people. Then, but I remember the day that on Anna, when I got nominated for Anna Karenina, we were in Los Angeles shooting The Soloist with Robert Downey Jr. Uh-huh. And I remember walking on the set that morning, like all full, because the Oscars nominations had just been announced. And, mm. and you know, four of us in our team had, had been nominated for Anna wow. And uh, I went in and I was like, Joe! And he just like glared at me like I was like, it was like daggers. And I realized how pissed off he was that, that he hadn't mm. been on it himself. But anyway, he got over it. A bit. Must be nice. Must be nice. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wow. Right, right. Well, what is that feeling like to sit in the seat being nominated? Oh God, that's, I mean, the first time it happened to me, I was absolutely terrified so terrified i thought my heart was going to stop i mean mm-hmm. i'm not exaggerating because you're in a room you know you can see the tv broadcast because there's monitors everywhere yeah, yeah. Uh, and also you know it's tech people are texting you all the time send us <laughs> i was so relieved when you know you don't have to get up on stage but the the other <laughs> one when i was that before I, when I sat down at my seat, I was on the end. It was quite close to the front, but on the end of the row. Mm. And this cinematographer is a friend of mine, Dion Baby, who'd actually won the year before. I think it was for Chicago. I actually oh. ran up to me, tapped me in the shoulder, and he said, "Mate." You're in the winning seat. That was the seat I was sitting in last year. He said, that's the, you got it. Because, you know, you only have to step out and you're on stage. Sure. And, and uh, then my heart was thumping like a little bird. And I thought, oh, my God, really? I, I, I don't want to do this. I, I didn't even have a proper <laughs> speech prepared. Uh, so I, you know, w- was terrified until, and luckily, cinematography came up quite early in the in the night's proceedings. Mm-hmm. So as soon as mm-hmm. we all knew who had won, it was uh, into the bar for some champagne and, and a live mm-hmm. night. Yeah, yeah. And then you miss the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I was there. We were there right to the end. And then there's the governor's ball afterwards, in which mm. at which I they had all these chocolate Oscars. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I sort of 
stole a load of those off the tables uh, to give to my my crew, you know, back home. Sure. And of course, they all melted on the on the plane on the way back, mm-hmm. but uh, destroyed all my clothes. <laughs> Damn it! All right. Well, ups and downs, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great night, a great night nonetheless. Actually, I have a small series of questions prepared because I asked a cinematographer that has been a previous guest what questions he would have for you. And he was like, okay, the, get ready because oh. uh, these are, of course, more cinematography Who did specific. you ask? Uh, his name is Benjamin Zadig. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Okay, great. Well, so thank you, Benjamin. He wants to know... Uh, how do you uh, think about lighting for big spaces, a, a big performance area when there's uh, several performers and uh, maybe like a big room, uh, like in Anna Karenina, the long take, and you know something like that. Well, you know, differently, Anna Karenina had the wonderful excuse of being a very consciously theatrical scenario and setup. Yes. So, so you could just be more expressive uh, with. with where the light was coming from and even how it would change. So, you know, I was able on that one to go as the camera's moving around a performer, uh, I can make the backlight a key and, and adjust the dimming to, so that it changes. And that dance of light is actually integrated into the choreography of the camera and the, the actor. But, you know, yeah, okay. my normal instinct when, when I'm, confronted with that conundrum of where the hell to put the light mm. or how to light it on such a big area is I'm always guided by what would happen in real life. You know, like if you're by a window, um, make a big, big source through a window and, you mm. know, make it as big as you possibly can and then diffuse it back so it has the nice fall off. So you don't need a lot of fiddly little sources in a room, my instinct is always to simplify it, to pare it back to the simplest you can. It will inevitably look much, much better uh, the simpler it is. Mm, mm. That's how I always approach things that way. I mean, in terms of where the camera goes in those scenarios, the best advice I ever got was from, I asked a similar question to one of my heroes, Chris Menges, because mm-hmm. I used to do these cinematography uh, kind of interviews at the Edinburgh Film Festival on stage. Yeah, yeah. And I asked him, I said, you know, everything, the camera is always in the right place, you know. And he said, my dear, I simply pointed at the story. And that was, it was great <laughs> yeah. advice. Yeah. Let the, let the story tell you where to point the camera. And your yeah. taste will tell you how to light it or how to diminish the light. And it's usually in, you think about a big space, you think, well, I have to light the whole place. Well, of course you don't. Uh, mm. You just, you light portions of it and let let people move in and out of, of the darkness and into the light and back again. That is much more interesting mm. because it creates a, a separate rhythm that's right. a, analogous. Yeah, and it doesn't make it just flat and uh, washed out. Right. Yeah. Um, he has some interesting questions about, you know, the life, basically. Like, how do you wind down after a day of work? God, the life. I mean, that's a very poignant question, I've got to say, mm. because all cinematographers have a a tough time. I mean, we 
I think we all love our work, but it has a devastating effect on on family life. It is very yeah. it's it's hard to to uh, hold a family together and to be, um, you know, to be present when you, you've, yeah. you've got the, the, the pressure of shooting in the way that we have to dedicate our lives to, to shooting when we're on a film. And winding down, I mean, I, you know, like all things, I like a drink. I, uh, I, I'll, I'll, uh, I mean, recently, I've never been to a gym in my life, but I've, I've recently had great uh, fun uh, being whipped around in Simrisham by a man from Morocco who uh, <laughs> who makes me, uh, you know, run around like a lunatic. That's good. I live in the most beautiful place in here in Sweden. That is a wind down for me when I when I'm there. And also, I've mm. got a place in in Italy in Tuscany too. So between those two places, there's the the restorative balm of nature that that helps me kind of just think right well that director brought me to hell and back but now you know i can see clearly now again and and you know the rising of the sun and the setting of the sun is not something i need to worry about about whether we're Mm. going to get our day it's just something beautiful to look at so those are very important things psychologically because if you let it overtake you it it can you need to defragment your head uh, a lot and that's been actually Mm. if i can if there's anything positive to take from this pandemic that we're in is that it is allowing for reflection that we may not have allowed ourselves to to do in the past yeah yeah well that was the second part of his question like how do you keep organized in your work so it doesn't infringe on your private life too much well it just does and and that's yeah. that's just it. You have to allow it to be part of your existence because it's so integral to your existence. Mm. Um, my family all come out uh, to, to to visit sets. They they're aware of what I do and they're very understanding of it. Um, and that's a blessing because that you know. You need that that kind of uh, support uh, from home, but there's no way you can separate it if you want to be serious about it. There's no way. Uh, oh right, no. So I, that's what I would say. If you're going to yeah. be serious about being a cinematographer, it has got to sort of enmesh itself in your whole existence. Yeah. I think that's true about every uh, like artistic endeavor. That we go through. Yeah, it's it's just who we are, and you know you got to be along for that ride if you want to be with us. You know, <laughs> exactly. In a way, exactly. But, but I get... love it. I wouldn't. You know, it sounds like maybe I'm sounding a bit dark and black on it, but I actually love love it and love the challenges of it, and mm. I wouldn't uh, exchange it for any other job. Even if it paid no. me millions, I wouldn't do it. You know, yeah, yeah, any other no. job. Mm. It, it would. It, this is what comes from the heart, and in order to do mm. things authentically and with 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 passion, it has to come from your inner core. So that's yeah. why it, it, it carries you on. Yeah, exactly. Do you ever get uh, like locked up? Do you ever get like the 
Locked up. Well, it was that one time in uh, a camera mag. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> but we weren't I don't supposed mean... to mention that. I thought you'd promised me. <laughs> I did. I did. Well, I, I want to go into your criminal past now. Uh, no, I, did, <laughs> I didn't mean that way. But like, do you ever have the, like the cinematographer's equivalent to a writer's block? Like, do you feel like, I have no idea what to do now? Did oh I, God, or with this shot or something? Are you kidding me? That that is actually so intrinsic to my job that I don't think I could be a cinematographer if I didn't feel that way. I, mm. I feel that way pretty much every time I step on a set or I, I have uh, that. And if if you didn't, you would drop back and rely on formula uh, to to make the work. So mm. the, the terror of not knowing what the hell to do is 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 basically the first ingredient in in making it it's like yeah. what shall i how, what should we make tonight for dinner well it's the terror of of like how do we light this scene how are we going to break it down what are the actors going to do like wh- what does the director want here i mean all those things fill my head full of a, a beautiful a terrible terror it's a beautiful terror but um it, it's it's actually also the 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 spur towards uh doing something good because as soon as you rest on your laurels of of like things you've done in the past you go well i know how to do that then then i think the, the resultant image will have a won't have the electricity that it needs it won't have mm-hmm. the, the the kind of the, the the sense of of uh god that that's interesting uh and of course I'm saying this to you, but of course I've relied on on old tropes many times when inspiration has failed me. I'm not saying that you come up with something like incredible every time you're presented with a conundrum, but uh, and they've saved my ass a few times. The experience of of knowing that shit, I'm I am a bit lost for inspiration here, but but mm. I know that this will work very well. But there are times when yeah. mm. things happen that usually when somebody throws a hand grenade at you, you know, I don't mean physically, but I mean mm-hmm. a, a, like a, mm. a physical or a psychological or a, a weather hand grenade or, or uh, a, yeah. mm. some accident on the set happens where you have to suddenly do a volt fast, change direction mm. and and come up with something. Usually is the most interesting thing that you, you've thought of because when people react to stuff on instinctively, but drawing on their own artistic sensibility and, and their heart and soul, it usually, and it, it's, it's not you as well because a film isn't made by one person. It's not made by a director. It's not made by a writer. It's made by a, a centipede on overtime. All going like, this is this is where we are. This is what we could do. And you know, as long as it's siphoned through a director's, you know, good taste and vision, it usually comes out quite well. Yeah. It's actually thought and and creative energy that makes things better. And the confusion of of that kind of furnace of creative thought at the moment. I mean, that's the thing that I always marvel at. It, it is mm. more, take Marvel's name in vain, but I always marvel <laughs> at, at uh, you know, how quick a decision can be made 
and yet how mm. lasting that decision might be in people's visual imaginations as they yeah, watch a movie yeah. for time and time exactly. again and it lasts. But you just think, oh my God, that that came in a in in the blink of an eye. Just our, uh, yeah. like stuff we did on nocturnal animals or like but our on atonement that Joe just said, look, pan the camera over there. Kira, stick that coat on you, run over there. Or like I remember when we did, we need to talk about Kevin. There was right. this, mm. you know, moment where we were all just, we'd finished writing the script, or Lynn had finished writing the script. We'd done some preliminary rehearsals. We hadn't started the film. And I was living in New York, around the corner from a really great pub called uh, The Ear Inn. John C. Riley and Tilda just said, let's just go for a drink, celebratory drink. We're starting in four days' time. And I, had, as I always did at that time, had my camera over my shoulder, Canon mm. 5D. We went, mm. had a few drinks, and we got a, a little bit drunken in celebration. And then suddenly outside, there was this absolute deluge. And it was Tilda's just said, this is incredible outside the window. We could shoot a flashback scene now of, of us as as lovers, as, as you know, mm. as John C. Riley and us as, as lovers in the past, which we'd planned to do, but three months down the line, you know, in a in a scene that would have taken yeah. a day to set up. So we sure. just went out in the pouring rain and the two of them with a few electric soups, drinks in them, spun around. I could hardly focus the bloody camera with a 50 mil lens. It was all in and out of focus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There was rain spots all over the lens. I was on their feet. I was like spinning around them. They were spinning each other. It was just one of those absolutely electric moments. And we had intended mm. to shoot the entire film on on film, uh, anamorphic and... When I got the footage back, Lynn was just like, this is fantastic. We, we're going to shoot the whole film on this little camera. And I said, Lynn, please, no. <laughs> don't do that. Let, we're going to shoot it on film. No. But let's, as an experiment, take this footage, which could be test footage for a shoot down the line, and ask them to scan it and put it on film, and we'll see how it might sit. Yeah. And we, we did that, and we watched it a few days later at Deluxe in New York, and it, anamorphic film came up with our digital footage and it was absolutely fantastic it was the i think it's some wow. of the best footage I've, I've ever shot but certainly got more elan and abandon than anything i would have dared to do not that yeah. i advocate to any cinematographer to ha have a drink on set because that's not that, verboten no, and no, illegal sure. <laughs> but uh, here i was doing something and in the end, we shot all our flashback scenes that way on this little camera, and the rest of on the film the had this. Yeah, it had this rectitude <laughs> with with uh, very sort of strident compositions and anamorphic and shooting on film. So the yeah, the yeah. combo that was an accident, a discovery that happened in a completely ad hoc sure. way. Do you get any uh, rolling shutter artifacts on those shot as well? I'm thinking with the rain and movement. It had yeah. grain, it had rolling shutter, it 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 was all over the place. It had broken pixels. It, had, <laughs> it was just it was a mess, but it had yeah. something. It had the intervention, it had the gauze of imper imperceptibility that was really interesting to to look at. Mm. Wow, oh okay, that's a really cool <laughs> insight into that film. And and they loved it. The actors loved it because they were actually there was nobody else around. It was spontaneous. I, I was the only one who could see through the camera. Lynn was just standing there. She could sort of 
see what the moment was and was directing mm. them. But they were able to just be free and decide, I'm charging off now. It doesn't matter that we haven't arranged it and the focus pillar hasn't got their marks. And I just charged after them desperately trying to focus. And the searching <laughs> of the focus was was integral to the feel of abandon yeah. and memory as well. And memory, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say, yeah. Uh, I, I was kind of curious, do you consider yourself to have a certain type of style? And I'm asking that because I feel like you seem to be very good at uh, giving the director and the film in question exactly what they need. Uh, it's not not that you disappear into them, but because they're all beautiful in a, in a way that I can see a, a line through it. But uh, could you say what your style is in words? No, or? I couldn't at all, Peter. And uh, that's a, a lovely question, and it's something that that not perturbs me. But you know, you just think, well, are you like a, a slow line drifter through cinematography but i think that i've i just like to look at things i like to react to the situation in hand and i like to read a script and have an impression of it and also Mm. i recognize that films are made in a very social way with so many sort of neurons and and connection points that that spark other ideas like one plus one equals three and and exponentially afterwards so of course if you allow yourself to um to to kind of engage with that idea of exponential creative abandon Mm. with the, the idea that there is an authoritative figure at the end who can just strain it or funnel it into some meaning. And that is mostly the director, but a lot of the editor actually, mm. uh, who yeah, does yeah. that. Then I think there's, that's a very exciting kind of vista of the actual mechanics of cinema itself, because mm. I think it's all about the the small things that we can bring to a film that are about all the the, the our histories, our creative histories, our our artistic uh, sensibilities, how things we've seen and how we feel. If you are honest enough to bring those to any particular script. I think that they react with that script, they react with the director, they react with other people. Mm. And together mm. you create this kind of uh, cinematographic mutation every yeah. every time you make a yeah. film. And that's mm. something, it sounds like a bad word now that we know about uh, viruses and these <laughs> words, but actually I've often used that word to describe how creativity can expand and explode in different directions from the same protagonists if that's mm. allowed it's mm. like a big dance and uh the, the 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 dance is there the dance has been done for centuries but this particular dance a swing and somebody breaks their hip a little muscle pulled here and there a wig falls off a toupee falls <laughs> off uh you know love happens People get drunk, people don't. All these things happen. It's like a a village barn dance. And I love that about 
cinema because or making of cinema that's at the outset before it goes out into the world as a a premeditated whole and people think mm. and many directors I sit there and Q and A is going you're fucking kidding me we never thought that that's total right. post film rationalization this was yeah, the yeah. beautiful accident of cinema that mm-hmm. that allowed different people to react to that at that moment. And mm. there it is, all shiny and new with a soundtrack underneath it. And mm. it has meaning and it has strength because it was made with people who had faith in their own artistic sensibility. And I think if yeah. you can trust yeah. that, then you're well on the way to calling yourself a filmmaker. Wonderfully put. And uh, I feel it's a really good place to end it as well. (laughs) (laughs) Before the bullshit extends even further. (laughs) No, no, no. No bullshit at all. It was just just great. I feel we we should go out on that high note. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so let's wrap it up. Um, Of course, we should look forward to uh, Cyrano coming out sometime in the future. Uh, Do you have any other projects that are on the way I'm coming out now? Nothing, nothing uh, definite planned yet, Peter. Um, I'm I'm reading scripts and there's a few things, but there's nothing really definite. I think people are kind of nervous. I mean, people are saying that this stuff coming up, but uh, at the moment, mm, I'm yeah. I'm just happy to let the eyeballs and brain grow fallow for a bit, and yeah. uh, <laughs> and. Uh, and see see what 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 comes up. I'm really enjoying time being back in Sweden and and enjoying the the blowing wind and and rain and sleet. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> okay, and uh, do you want to plug any place where we can find you online and uh, any social media or things like that we should follow? Yeah, um, I'm I'm on Instagram as Maxhami, which is. I think it's Mac Shamey, or maybe it's Shamey Mac. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's Shamey Mac. Okay, so I'm on Instagram, Shamey Mac, S-E-A-M-I-E-M-C. I'm on Facebook too, and Twitter. Uh, And uh, feel free to uh, get in touch there anytime. I've lots of discussions going on with with cinematographers across the world. It's actually something that, that gives me a lot of pleasure. It's just yeah. connecting mm. with, with people and, and, and talking with people on that those formats. Um, so, yeah, feel free to contact me on that. All right. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you very much for doing this. It'd be lovely to see you again sometime, Peter. Thank you for inviting me on your show. Yeah. Hopefully we can see each other actually in uh, IRL. (laughs) (laughs) That would be great. Listen, break a lens. Oh, right. (laughs) Hopefully not. I'm I'm too poor to buy new lenses. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a good saying. Break a lens. All right. Bye, everybody. 